0: Chapter 5 of The Secret Tomb by Maurice LeBlanc This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5. We Will Help You The Count was silent. Dorothy murmured fearfully, full of the dread with which the utterance of certain words inspired one. Is it possible? Can they have murdered—can they have murdered my father? Everything leads one to believe it. And how? How? "'Poison?' "'The blow had fallen. "'The young girl burst into tears. "'The Count bent over her and said, "'Read it. "'For my part, I am of the opinion "'that your father scribbled these last pages "'between two attacks of fever. "'When he was dead, "'the hospital authorities, "'finding a letter and an envelope "'all ready for the post, "'sent it all on to me without examining it. "'Look at the end. "'It is the writing of a very sick man.' THE PENCIL MOVES AT RANDOM DIRECTED BY AN EFFORT OF OIL WHICH WAS EVERY MOMENT GROWING WEAKER. DOROTHY dried HER TEARS. SHE WISHED TO KNOW AND JUDGE FOR HERSELF, AND SHE READ IN A LOW VOICE. WHAT A DREAM! BUT WAS IT REALLY A DREAM? WHAT I SAW LAST NIGHT? DID I SEE IT IN A NIGHTMARE? OR DID I ACTUALLY SEE IT? THE REST OF THE WOUNDED MEN, MY NEIGHBOURS, NOT ONE OF THEM WAS AWAKENED. YET THE MAN, THE MEN MADE A NOISE. There were two of them. They were talking in a low voice, in the garden, under a window, which was certainly open on account of the heat, and then the window was pushed. To do that one of the two must have climbed onto the shoulders of the other. What did he want? He tried to pass his arm through, but the window caught against the table by the side of the bed, and then he must have slipped off his jacket. In spite of that his sleeve must have caught in the window, and only his arm. His bare arm came through, preceded by a hand which groped in my direction, in the direction of the drawer. Then I understood. The medal was in the drawer. Ah, how I wanted to cry out! But my throat was cramped. Then another thing terrified me. The hand held a small bottle. There was on the table a glass of water for me to drink with the dose of medicine. The hand poured several drops from the bottle into the glass. Horror! "'poison beyond a doubt. "'But I will not drink my medicine, no, no. "'And I write this, this morning, "'to make sure of being able to recall it. "'I write that the hand afterwards opened the drawer, "'and while it was seizing the medal, "'I saw, I saw on the naked arm, above the elbow, "'words written. "'Dorothy had to bend lower, "'so shaky and illegible did the writing become, "'and it was with great difficulty that she was able,' syllable by syllable to decipher it three words written tattooed as sailors do three words good god these three words the words on the medal and robberay fortuna that was all the unfinished sheet showed nothing more but undecipherable characters which dorothy did not even try to make out for a long while she sat with bowed head the tears falling from her half-closed eyes they perceived that the circumstances in which, in all likelihood, her father had died, had brought back all her grief. The Count, however, continued, The fever must have returned, the delirium, and not knowing what he was doing, he must have drunk the poison. Or, at any rate, it is a plausible hypothesis, for what else could it have been that this hand poured into the glass? But I confess that we have not arrived at any certainty in the manner." Just and Raoul's father, at once apprised by me of what had happened, accompanied me to Chartres. Unfortunately, the staff, the sergeant-major, and the two nurses had been changed, so that I was brought up short against the official document which ascribed the death to infectious complications. Moreover, ought we to have made further researches? My two cousins were not of that opinion, neither was I. A crime? How to prove it? by means of these lines in which a sick man describe a nightmare which has ridden him? Impossible. Is that your opinion, mademoiselle?' Dorothy did not answer, and it put the Count rather out of countenance. He seemed to defend himself, not without a touch of temper. "'But we could not, mademoiselle. Owing to the war, we ran against endless difficulties. It was impossible.' We had to cling to the one fact which we had actually learned, and not venture beyond this actual fact which I will state in these terms. In addition to us four, to us three, rather, since Dear gone, alas, was no more. There was a fourth person attacking the problem which we had set ourselves to solve, and that person, moreover, had a considerable advantage over us, a rival, an enemy had arisen capable of the most infamous actions to attain his end. What enemy? Events did not allow us to busy ourselves with this affair, and what is more, prevented us from finding you as we should have wished. Two letters that I wrote to you at Bar le Duc remained unanswered. Months passed. Georges d'Avernoy was killed at Verdun, D'Estricheur wounded in Artois, and I myself dispatched on a mission to Salonica from which I did not return till after the armistice. In the following year the work here was begun. The housewarming took place yesterday, and only today does chance bring you here. You can understand, mademoiselle, how amazed we were when we learned, step by step, first that excavations were being made without our knowing anything about it, that the places in which they had been made were explained by the word Fortuna, which bore out exactly the inscription which your father had read twice, on the gold medal and on the arm which stole the gold medal from him. Her confidence in your extraordinary clear-sightedness became such that Madame de Chagny and Raoul Davonnet wished you to be informed of the complete history of the affair. And I must admit that the Countess de Chagny displayed remarkable intuition and judgment since the confidence we felt in you was really placed in that Yolande d'Argonne whom her father recommended to us. It is then but natural, mademoiselle, that we should invite you to collaborate with us in our attempt. You take the place of Jeanne d'Argonne, as Raoul Davonne has taken the place of Georges Davonne. Our partnership is unbroken. A shadow rested on the satisfaction that the Count de Chagny was feeling in his eloquence and magnanimous proposal. Dorothy maintained an obstinate silence. Her eyes gazed vacantly before her. She did not stir. Was she thinking that the Count had not taken much trouble to discover the daughter of his kinsman Jean d'Argonne and to rescue her from the life she was leading? Was she still feeling some resentment on account of the humiliation she had suffered in being accused of stealing the earrings? The Countess de Chagny questioned her gently. "'What's the matter, Dorothy? This letter has filled you with gloom. It's the death of your father, isn't it?' "'Yes,' said Dorothy after a pause in a dull voice it's a terrible business. You also believe that they murdered him? Certainly, if not the medal would have been found. Besides, the last sheets of the letter are explicit. And it's your feeling that we ought to have striven to bring the murderer to book? I don't know, I don't know, said the young girl slowly. But if you think so, we can take the matter up again. You may be sure that we will lend you our assistance.' "'No,' she said, "'I will act alone. "'It will be best. "'I will discover the guilty man, and he shall be punished. "'I promise my father he shall. "'I swear it.' "'She uttered these words with measured gravity, "'raising her hand a little. "'We will help you, Dorothy,' declared the Countess, "'for I hope that you won't leave us. "'Here you are at home.' "'Dorothy shook her head. "'You are too kind, madam.' It isn't kindness, it's affection. You won my heart at first sight, and I beg you to be my friend. I am, madam, wholly your friend, but— What? You refuse? exclaimed the Count de Chagny in a tone of vexation. We offer the daughter of Jean Darcon, our cousin, a life befitting her name and birth, and you prefer to go back to that wretched existence. It is not wretched, I assure you, monsieur. My four children and I are used to it. Their health demands it, the countess insisted. But we can't allow it, really. You're going to stay with us at least some days, and from this evening you will dine and sleep at the chateau. I beg you to excuse me, madam. I'm rather tired. I want to be alone. In truth, she appeared of a sudden to be worn out with fatigue. One would never have supposed that a smile could animate that drawn, dejected face. The Countess de Chagny insisted no longer. Ah, well, postpone your decision till tomorrow. Send your four children to dinner this evening. It will give us great pleasure to question them. Between now and tomorrow, you can think it over, and if you persist, I'll let you go your way. You'll agree to that, won't you? Dorothy rose and went towards the door. The Count and Countess went with her. But on the threshold, she paused for a moment. In spite of her grief, the mysterious adventure which had during the last hour or two been revealed to her, continued to exercise her mind, without, so to speak, her being aware of it, and throwing the first ray of light into darkness, she asserted, I really believe that all the legends that have been handed down in our families are based on a reality. There must be somewhere about here buried, or hidden, treasure, and that treasure one of these days will become the property of him or of those who shall be the possessors of the talisman, that is to say, of the gold medal which was stolen from my father. That's why I should like to know whether any of you, besides my father, has ever heard of a gold medal being mentioned in these legends. It was Raoul Davonnet who answered, That's a point on which I can give you some information, mademoiselle. A fortnight ago I saw in the hands of my grandfather, with whom I live at Hillock's Manor in Vendee, a large gold coin. He was studying it and he put it back in its case at once with the evident intention of hiding it from me. And he didn't tell you anything about it? Not a word. However, on the eve of my departure he said to me, When you come back I've an important revelation to make to you. I ought to have made it long ago. You believe that he was referring to the matter in hand? I do. And for that reason on my arrival at Roberay, I informed my cousins de Chagny and de who promised to pay me a visit at the end of July, when I will inform them of what I have learned. That's all? All, mademoiselle, and it appears to me to confirm your hypothesis. We have here a talisman of which there are doubtless several copies. Yes, yes, there's no doubt about it, murmured the young girl. And the death of my father is explained by the fact that he was the possessor of this talisman. But, objected Raoul Davonnet, Was it not enough to steal it from him? Why this useless crime? Because, remember, the gold medal gives certain indications. In getting rid of my father they reduce the number of those who, in perhaps the near future, will be called upon to share these riches. Who knows whether other crimes have not been committed? Other crimes? In that case my grandfather is in danger. He is, she said simply. The Count became uneasy, and, pretending to laugh, he said, "'Then we are also in danger, mademoiselle, "'since there are signs of recent excavation about Roberay. "'You also, Count?' "'We ought, then, to be on our guard.' "'I advise you to.' The Count de Chagny turned pale and said in a shaky voice, "'How? What measure should we take?' "'I will tell you to-morrow,' said Dorothy.' "'You shall know to-morrow what you have to fear "'and what measures you ought to take to defend yourselves.' "'You promise that?' "'I promise it.' D'Estreicher, who had followed with close attention "'every phase of the conversation, "'without taking part in it, stepped forward. "'We make all the more point of this meeting to-morrow, mademoiselle, "'because we still have to solve together a little additional problem, "'the problem of the cardboard box. "'You haven't forgotten it?' "'I forget nothing, monsieur,' she said. To-morrow, at the hour fixed, that little matter and other matters, the theft of the sapphire earrings, among other things, shall be made clear. She went out of the orangery. The night was falling, the gates had been reopened, and the showmen, having dismantled their shows, were departing. Dorothy found St. Quentin waiting for her in great anxiety and the three children lighting a fire. When the dinner-bell rang, she sent them to the chateau and remained alone to make her meal of the thick soup and some fruit. In the evening, while waiting for them, she strolled through the night towards the parapet which looked down onto the ravine and rested her elbows on it. The moon was not visible, but the veil of light clouds which floated across the heavens were imbued with its light. For a long while she was conscious of the deep silence, and, bareheaded, she presented her burning brow to the fresh evening airs which ruffled her hair. "'Dorothy,' Her name had been spoken in a low voice by someone who had drawn near her without her hearing him. But the sound of his voice, low as it was, made her tremble. Even before recognizing the outline of gesture, she divined his presence. Had the parapet been lower and the ravine less profound, she might have essayed flight. Such dread did this man inspire in her. However, she braced herself to keep calm and master him. What do you want, monsieur? she said coldly. The Count and Countess had the delicacy to respect my desire to keep quiet. I'm surprised to see you here. He did not answer, but she discerned his dark shape nearer and repeated, What do you want? I only want to say a few words to you, he murmured. Tomorrow, at the Chateau, will be soon enough? No, what I have to say can only be heard by you and me. And I can assure you, mademoiselle, that you can listen to it without being offended. In spite of the incomprehensible hostility that you have displayed towards me from the moment we met, I feel, for my part, nothing but friendliness, admiration, and the greatest respect for you. You need fear neither my words nor my actions. I am not addressing myself to the charming and attractive young girl, but to the woman who, all this afternoon, has dumbfounded us by her intelligence. Now listen to me. No, she broke in. I will not. Your proposals can only be insulting. He went on in a louder voice, and she could feel that gentleness and respectfulness did not come easy to him. He went on. Listen to me. I order you to listen to me, and to answer at once. I'm no maker of phrases, and I'll come straight to the point, rather crudely if I must, at the risk of shocking you. Here it is. "'Chance has in a trice thrown you into an affair "'which I have every right to consider my business and no one else's. "'We are stuck with supernumeraries, of whom, when the time comes, "'I do not mean to take the slightest account. "'All these people are imbeciles who will never get anywhere. Chagny is a conceited ass. "'Davernay a country bumpkin. "'So much dead weight that we've got to lug about with us, you and I. "'Then why work for them? "'Let's work for ourselves.' For the two of us. Will you? You and I, partners, friends, what a job we should make of it. My energy and strength at the service of your intelligence and clear-sightedness. Besides, besides, consider all I know, for I, I know the problem. What will take you weeks to discover, what I am certain you will never discover, I have at my fingers' ends. I know all the factors in the problem except one or two which I shall end by adding to them. Help me. Let us search together. It means a fortune, the discovery of fabulous wealth, boundless power. Will you? He bent a little too far over the young girl, and his fingers brushed the cloak she was wearing. Dorothy, who had listened in silence in order to learn the inmost thoughts of her adversary, started back indignantly at his touch be off, leave me alone, I forbid you to touch me. You a friend? You? You? The repulsion with which he inspired Dorothy set him beside himself, and foaming with rage he cried furiously, so, so you refuse, you refuse in spite of the secret I have surprised, in spite of what I can do, and what I'm going to do. For the stolen earrings, it is not merely a matter of St. Quentin. You were there in the ravine, to watch over his expedition. And what is more, as his accomplice, you protected him, and the proof exists. Terrible, irrefutable, the box is in the hands of the Countess, and you dare? You, a thief! He made a grab at her. Dorothy ducked and slipped along the parapet, but he was able to grip her wrists, and he was dragging her towards him, when of a sudden he let go of her, struck by a ray of light which blinded him. Perched on the parapet, Montfalcon had switched full on his face the clear light of an electric torch. Districher took himself off. The ray followed him, cleverly guided. Dirty little brat, he growled. I'll get you, and you too, young woman. If tomorrow at two o'clock, at the chateau, you do not come to heal. The box will be opened in the presence of the police. It's for you to choose. He disappeared in the shrubbery. Toward three o'clock in the morning, the trap, which looked down on the box from the interior of the caravan, was opened, as it had been opened the morning before. A hand reached out and shook St. Quentin, who was sleeping under his rugs. "'Get up! Dress yourself! No noise!' he protested. "Dorothy, what you wish to do is absurd!' "'Do as you're told,' St. Quentin obeyed. Outside the caravan he found Dorothy quite ready." By the light of the moon he saw that she was carrying a canvas bag, slung on a band running over her shoulder, and a coil of rope. She led him to the spot at which the parapet touched the entrance gates. They fastened the rope to one of the bars and slid down it. Then St. Quentin climbed up to the parapet and unfastened the rope. They went down the slope into the ravine and along the foot of the cliff to the fissure up which St. Quentin had climbed the night before. "'Let us climb up,' said Dorothy." You will let down the rope and help me to ascend. The ascent was not very difficult. The window of the pantry was open. They climbed in through it, and Dorothy lit her bull's-eye lantern. Take that little ladder in the corner, she said. But St. Quentin started to reason with her afresh. It's absurd. It's madness. We are running into the lion's maw. Get on! But indeed, Dorothy... He got a thump in the ribs. "'Stop it, and answer me,' she snapped. "'You're sure that Destercher's is the last bedroom in the left-hand passage?' "'Certain, as you told me to. "'I questioned the servants without seeming to do so, after dinner last night. "'And you dropped the powder I gave you into his cup of coffee?' "'Yes.' "'Then he's sleeping like a log, and we can go straight to him. "'Not another word.' "'On their way they stopped at a door.' It was the dressing-room adjoining the boudoir of the Countess. St. Quentin set his ladder against it and climbed through the transom. Three minutes later he came back. Did you find the cardboard box? Dorothy asked. Yes, I found it on the table, took the earrings out of it, and put the box back in its place with the rubber ring round it. They went on down the passage. Each bedroom had a dressing-room and a closet which served as a wardrobe attached to it. They stopped before the last transom, St. Quentin climbed through it and opened the door of the dressing room for Dorothy. There was a door between the dressing room and the bedroom. Dorothy opened it an inch and let a ray from her lantern fall on the bed. He's asleep, she whispered. She drew a large handkerchief from her bag and corked a small bottle of chloroform and poured some drops on the handkerchief. Across the bed, in his clothes, like a man suddenly overcome by sleep, Destritier was sleeping so deeply that the young girl switched on the electric light. Then, very gently, she placed the chloroformed handkerchief over his face. The man sighed, writhed, and was still. Very cautiously, Dorothy and St. Quentin passed two slip knots in a rope over both of his arms and tied the two ends of it round the iron uprights of the bed. Then, quickly, without bothering about him, they wrapped the bedclothes round his body and legs, and tied them round him with the tablecloth and curtain cords. Then d'Estreicher did awake. He tried to defend himself. Too late. He called out. Dorothy gagged him with a napkin. Next morning the Count and Countess de Chagny were taking their coffee with Raul de Vernay in the big dining-room of the chateau, when the porter came to inform them that at daybreak the directress of Dorothy's circus had asked him to open the gates and that the caravan had departed. The directress had left a letter addressed to the Count de Chagny. All three of them went upstairs to the Countess's boudoir. The letter ran as follows. My cousin, offended by her brusqueness, the Count started. Then he went on. My cousin, I took an oath, and I keep it. The man who was making excavations round the chateau and last night stole the earrings is the same person who five years ago stole the medal and poisoned my father. I hand him over to you. Let justice take its course. Dorothy, Princess of Argonne The Count and Countess and their cousin gazed at one another in amazement. What did it mean? Who was the culprit? How and where had she handed him over? It's a pity that Dastrycher isn't down, said the Count. He is so helpful. The Countess took up the cardboard box which Dastrycher had entrusted to her and opened it without more ado. The box contained exactly what Dorothy had told them, some white pebbles and shells. Then why did Distriture seem to attach so much importance to his finding it? Someone knocked gently at the boudoir door. It was the major-domo, the count's confidential man. What is it, Dominique? The chateau was broken into last night. Impossible, the count declared in a positive tone. The doors were all locked. Where did they break in? I don't know. But I found a ladder against the wall by Monsieur de bedroom, and the transom is broken. The criminals made their way into the dressing room, and when they had done the job, came out through the bedroom door. What job? I don't know, sir. I didn't like to go further into the matter by myself. I put everything back in its place. The Count de Chagny drew a hundred-franc note from his pocket. Not a word of this, Dominique. Watch the corridor and see that no one disturbs us. Raoul and his wife followed him. The door between Distriture's dressing room and bedroom was half open. The smell of chloroform filled the room. The Count uttered a cry. On his bed lay Distriture, gagged and safely bound to it. His eyes were rolling wildly. He was groaning. Beside him lay the muffler, which Dorothy had described as belonging to the man who was engaged in making excavations. On the table, while in sight, lay the sapphire earrings. But a terrifying overwhelming sight met the eyes of all three of them simultaneously, the irrefutable proof of the murder of Jean d'Argonne and the theft of the medal. His right arm, bare, was stretched out across the bed, fastened by the wrist, and on that arm they read, Tattooed, in Robore Fortuna. End of chapter 5